again in the suttas. I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. So all of these different teachings that you hear are all pointing to one end. And that is having the choice to choose non-suffering over suffering. It makes a huge difference to understand that. Because there's so many different ways one can look at all of the Buddha's various teachings. But when you understand that he's always pointing us to just this one end. My teacher, Ajahn Sumedho's teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great meditation masters of last century in Thailand, puts it this way. There, and I do, in Dancing with Life, I actually, I dedicate the whole book to the monastics who've kept the tradition alive, and I quote the Venerable Ajahn Chah in this way. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering. We've all chosen that suffering, right? Every one of us. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So to understand all the Dhamma is describing this predicament and the solution to it, and then empowering us as to how to choose the second kind of suffering. So there's no going around the suffering. There's not a true spiritual bypass. The way out is the way through, as T.S. Eliot put it. The way out of suffering, the way out of this continual pattern of suffering in our lives, in all sorts of ways of wanting mind, of aversive mind, of hurting mind, of anxious mind, of a bitter resentment mind. The way out of this is the way through. And it's through mindfulness and through compassion, all the Brahma Viharas, that we, we find this way. But it's difficult. It's really difficult. And one of the reasons for this difficulty is the gap. This is uh, the opening of a New Yorker article of March 17 of this year. And it's called, Are You Listening? And it's Conversations with My Deaf Mother by Andre Asaman. I always knew my mother couldn't hear, but I can't remember when it dawned on me that she'd always be deaf. If I was told, I didn't believe it. It was no different when I learned about sex. Someone may have sat me down for the facts of life. And although I wasn't really shocked and probably already knew, I couldn't bring myself to trust any of it. In between knowing something and refusing to know it lies a murky chasm that even the most enlightened among us are perfectly happy to inhabit. This is the point tonight. This chasm, this, the existence of this chasm, repeating, in between knowing something and refusing to know it, in between knowing something and refusing to know it, lies a murky chasm that even the most enlightened among us are perfectly happy to inhabit. Why is that? Do you think that's true for you? Do you think that's true for people in general? This, this chasm between knowing something and our refusing to know it. How many times in our lives 
that we know something is bad for us, and yet we refuse to know it and go ahead and do it. Open that refrigeration, the refrigerator door, uh, whatever your particular uh, weakness is, where you repeat something that you know, having based on many experiences with this, it's not a good idea. You know, your, your difficult sibling says something about how you always got the best breaks in the family, and you know there's no point going in that conversation, and off you go. <laughs> or there's someone at work who's always going to be negative, and you promptly say something positive about a new idea in front of others to that person that's going to be negative. And of course, what you get is negative feedback. How is it that we are unable to stay with what we know? Why do we, knowing better, choose the suffering that leads to more suffering? Why do we do this over and over again? What happens? What happens? Where is the mindfulness that is there one moment and then gone for days or weeks in a given area? where we can't be mindful of something that we have painfully learned. What happens? What do we do? Where do we go? Or in the meditation tonight, when I ask you to notice the gaps in mindfulness, where do we go when we cease to be mindful? What happens? There you are with the breath, and then there's this gap. And suddenly you wake up and you've been planning or fantasizing or complaining but without any mindfulness. The point of the meditation of collecting and unifying the mind around the breath isn't to be able to be with the breath, but to be able to be present, to be able to stay mindful. Because when we can do that, then we can be with any object of experience wisely. Wisely. It's that wise way of being with experience where there is discernment to recognize what is suffering and non-suffering that we're cultivating. We're not cultivating being able to be with an object for the point of being with an object itself. It's this discernment to have a mind that's collected and unified to the point that we can have mindfulness. We have what we call choiceless awareness in the Buddha's teaching of mindfulness, in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's choiceless awareness as it matures. We're able to be with any object and be at ease with that object and see with discriminating wisdom the nature of that particular experience of the mind. With discriminating wisdom, we say, oh yes, this is just wanting mind. Or, oh, the factors of awakening are present. There's energy and interest, this kind of investigation. Oh, the mind's got a buoyancy. There's, there's, there's a lot of joy in the mind right now. We're able to see what's present in the mind in a way that we stay with what is, is wholesome or skillful, and we move away from that which is unwholesome or unskillful. This is right effort in the Eightfold Path, the, the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So, off we go with a certain degree of understanding and then we hit the gap. Hit the gap in a moment on the cushion, hit the gap in a moment of our daily lives. So, what is that? Let's just start with meditation. What did you learn 
as you were watching yourself meditate tonight. When I say, Lauren, what did you observe about you? There you were with the breath, and suddenly you weren't. And you didn't know where you were for a while, and then you did. So if anyone, you don't know each other, and it's much harder to speak in a group when we don't know each other, because it doesn't necessarily feel so safe. So there's a, there's a gap between our impulse to speak and feeling safe enough to speak. But if someone would, please, what did you notice? Some brave soul. What did you notice? Yes, please. Well, the wandering is seductive. There's some necessity to go there. The wandering is seductive. There's some necessity to go there. So there's something about wandering away and not staying present as you're wandering, but to just wander. To, to, that, that gap pulls us in in some way. Thank you. Someone else? Talking about choiceless awareness, is it feels like a sense of choiceless uh, lack of awareness. Choiceless lack of awareness. <laughs> yeah, it just pulls us on in. Someone else, thank you for that one. Yes, please. Reacquiring anxiety. Revisiting anxiety. That there's some, in many instances, there's some seemingly need to revisit anxiety as though that that's how we rock the baby and comfort the baby by revisiting it. And sometimes that's true, but often not. To some extent, uh, we can be mindful and not be, uh, and also be unmindful at the same time. So we can kind of notice the sound but still be aware of our breath. Yeah. So sometimes we can be both mindful and not mindful at the same time, that we can, we can uh, have a, a certain presence of, of, of being with the breath, but, the, but something else comes in, we still sort of know the breath. There's a, there, it's not as though it's completely gone, but there's, it's semi-gone. I think sometimes you can get, um, you assess how mindful you're being, and so you become self-critical about the process of trying to be mindful. Yeah, so then you, you can notice that you, how you're doing, and you become self-critical about the way you're being mindful. That there's some, rather than just being mindful, we're now separating from that mindfulness to give our view and opinion to ourselves about it. <laughs> and so that's something new that we've not done a hundred times before, a thousand times. Please. No, I think the fact that I was focused on my breath and was into a, into a really steady breathing rhythm, so then when I went into choiceless lack of awareness, somehow I think I popped a little bit back into awareness and breath. So the breath was, in a sense, my, my, my buddy that was saying, right. hey, come back. The, come back. the breath was your, your buddy to come back when you'd go away that allowed you to come back sooner. And uh, yes, and that's why we call it an anchor object. It tethers us. And it could, it could be anything. It could be sound. It could be body awareness. But when something tethers us and we get used to it and we, we find it, we, we develop an intimate relationship with it, it will bring us back in just that way. Yes, please. So I, I was able to stay with it for a while and, and looking for a gap, could not find a gap. And then I think I fell asleep. Mm. And then your, um, your voice brought me right back to like no gap again, breathing. Mm. So there are moments just like that when there's no gap. And don't we like that? When there's some steadiness of mindfulness for a while? It's a very pleasant thing when that happens because the mind actually is quite content if it is able to be with some object. It doesn't really care so much what object. 
as long as there's some object that it, that, that it can stay with. The mind wants to be present, and yet it also has this other aspect of wandering away that many of you have mentioned. So someone in the back of your, yes. So, and uh, one, the one thing about that she could feel the thoughts, she was felt as though she was like, an, there was an observer there that was seeing the thoughts come and go, and she was saying, go away, go away to the thoughts. When we're in that initial stage of collecting and unifying the mind, which we call concentration or samadhi, we are sending the thoughts away in order to get more and more concentrated. But in practicing vipassana, and I really want to be clear about this because this came up just Saturday in the day long I taught here. When we're doing vipassana, once we've collected and unified the mind to the point we call access or neighborhood concentration, or even, I don't want to get too technical here, but even in a kind of momentary, moment to moment concentration, we are willing to let everything come in. We use the anchor, but we not, we're, not, we're willing to let every thought come in as long as we can stay with it with our mindfulness. Because the mindfulness then allows us to see what's skillful and not skillful in every thought and to see the dharma of that. So here's a thought, and then here's another thought, and here's another thought, and it just keeps changing on its own. And that there's a, that's the truth of anicca. This is one of the primary teachings of the Buddha, the truth that everything changes. And likewise, we can see that things are pleasant or unpleasant. And that if it's pleasant, it pulls us away from our anchor. And if it's unpleasant, it can pull us away from our anchor. And each instance, we can, we, the mind can start to tighten and be, we are being controlled by the existence of pleasant or unpleasant in our experience. So we're moving to a reactive mind, like puppets on the string. We dance this way if it's pleasant, we dance this way if it's unpleasant. That's a form of dancing with life, but a very limited form. It's a, it's a dependent kind of form. What we're learning through our mindfulness is to have a responsive relationship with life where we are responding from our deepest values to all conditions. To whatever's arising, we're not being little slave, little robots to the pleasant or unpleasantness. If it's unpleasant conditions, we still would respond from our deepest values. If it's pleasant, still our deepest values. We're not dependent on conditions. This is the first level of freedom of the Buddha, that we're free from being controlled by conditions. And therefore, we are, our relationship to the suffering in conditions, and we can suffer from pleasant conditions as well as unpleasant. When, you've, when you have something you want and it's going away, that's a lot of suffering. But it's pleasant right now, but we jump to the fact that it's going to go away. Many other variations of that. And so what we're seeing is that we can, and through our mindfulness, we are able to be able to rest somewhere, as a couple of you have said, somewhere other than the pleasant or unpleasantness of conditions. So you had your hand up, please. I think there's something seductive to me or um, some sort of learned value in thought, specifically analytical mm -hmm. thought. So the farther I get into what I would call the void or the space of unknowing and the more comfortable I get in that, it's almost like the 
tug to pull me off gets harder as if there's something in my being that says it's unsafe for me to be in that void and I must engage in analytical thinking regardless of what it is. Right, right. Yeah, so the, she's talking about how in our, we have been conditioned to value analytical thinking, that we feel safer in analytical thinking, we feel more worthwhile in analytical thinking. And it's not that analytical thinking isn't really valuable, it's hugely important, but our being dependent on it, our being addicted to it, is not freedom. And a lot of times that analytical thought is repetitious in nature, where it's just churning for its own sake. And that is not helpful to anything, including creativity. So it doesn't really help with analytical thinking, that kind of addictive analytical thinking process. There's, um, it's it's uh, being analytical for its own sake and not useful at all. So this gap, this gap, this gap that uh, can come up in our daily lives so much and so often. This is how W.H. Uh, Auden in his his poem, of which this is only a four-line excerpt from the poem, The Age of Anxiety. He says, we would rather be ruined than changed. <laughs> Pretty strong statement there. But then, why do we, why do we continue to do things that we know are going to cause harm to us or another? Why is there this gap? between what we know and what we refuse to know. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. This gap, this, this anxiety we have that, allow, that creates the conditions where we don't trust what we know, that we don't trust our own capacity we in some way don't believe that we can truly choose the end of suffering, to choose the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. We don't trust that we can do that. We don't have the confidence. And we can't gain that confidence in an instance. It is a slow practice of returning over and over again, of starting over, of being with ourselves enough to see that we can make a difference in our lives over time. And it's not, usually there's a few exceptions, but usually it doesn't occur very rapidly. So we have to learn to love practice as its own sake. How do we learn to love practice as its own sake? Because we come to see that practice represents our values, our deepest values, that we are, we're walking our talk we're meeting life as we choose to meet life. We don't know the outcome, but we're being real to ourselves, we're being authentic to ourselves, that there is a continuity that comes from practice. And I don't mean formal practice alone, but I'm certainly including formal practice, but I mean walking around mindfulness. That there is a continuity that comes to our lives, there is a kind of authenticity that comes from this continuity of mindfulness. Two things about that. One, it's not just mindfulness, but it's an intentional mindfulness. You can be mindful and be mindful of just seeking advantage. So in every moment, I'm mindful, but I'm mindful of what? What's my advantage here? 
How can I say something that's clever and people be impressed? Or how can I say something that allows me to get my way? That is a, that is a kind of mindfulness that is not the Buddha's teaching of mindfulness. But it works. It works. The person, all other things being equal, the person that's most mindful in the room will be the one who gets his way or her way. Because they're more awake. They see the opportunity. They see, oh, this person can be persuaded if I use this kind of language. I can persuade them because it, it touches their fear. It touches their greed. So the mindfulness can be used in a way that is not for the purpose of ending suffering. In two or three places in the suttas, the Buddha talks about wrong mindfulness. So mindfulness, as the Buddha is teaching it, is samasati, wise or, or uh, uh, wise mindfulness, uh, or right mindfulness, sama, wise or right mindfulness. That mindfulness is part of the Eightfold Path. It's not separate from the Eightfold Path. The, the mindfulness and the concentration, the wise understanding, wise intention, right effort, all of these things are a, a piece. They're eightfolds of one path. One path. And so samasati is for this purpose of being able to choose non-suffering over suffering. I say this and talk about this this way because in part the, mindful, the gap that occurs and a lot of our suffering as you can quickly reflect, comes from that gap. We know better. You know better, and you know better, and I know better, and you know better, and you know better, and you know better, and you don't choose from your wisdom. There is a gap of lack of being present. The wisdom isn't allowed to be present. We fall into some gap between what we know and what we refuse to know, as, as the author so brilliantly stated it. We do that in part because we don't trust enough. We do it in part because we don't, uh, we don't have this confidence in ourselves that, w that we can have a better way of relating to this moment and to every moment, the next moment and the next moment. There is a gap there in our confidence. All of these different ways that the gap manifest. And intention, sama samkapa, another part of the Eightfold Path comes in because when we're being mindful as in the Buddha's way, we're being mindful of something quite specific, our intention to choose non-suffering over suffering. So it's an intentional mindfulness. The, it's a, the, the intention and mindfulness are joined at the hip as I talk about emotional chaos to clarity. That is what gives us a sense of who we are and what we're about in a continuous way. So our life may be difficult at times or not difficult, but we feel real to ourselves because we are relating to ourselves from a common purpose, from a, a, a common presence. We're here, we're here, we're here, we're here, and we're about something, and we know what we're about. Intention is this moment. Goals are where we want to get to. But intentions are this moment. So each step is an intentional step towards a goal. You're trying to uh, take your friend up to Mount Tam to see the sunset as it's, it's sinking into the ocean. That's your goal. Wholesome goal. You want to share something with your friend from out of town who's never seen this. So there you are walking up some trail to get to West Point Inn, say. How you do that 
is very different than the go. The intention is every step. If you're not paying attention to the step, you're in such a hurry that you exhaust your friend and your friend really doesn't have a good time. Or you're not paying attention to what your friend's capable of doing and you take them up a path that's too hard for them and they get hurt. Or you get lost. Each step, we're either being skillful in that step or not. And our intention is that moment to be skillful, to not cause harm in this very moment, to choose non-harming over harming. And we can have very, uh, well, to start with, we can have unskillful goals, uh, unwholesome goals, and we know how that ends up, because we've all done that. But we can even have wholesome goals and still go wrong. We can still cause suffering with a wholesome goal because we are not being skillful in the moment. That skillfulness is the intention to not cause harm in this moment. The Buddha says it in terms of uh, non-harming, kindness, loving kindness, and renunciation. The renunciation is the muscle, the willpower, the perseverance, the resolve to say, no, I won't. I won't rush ahead because I want to get my friend up the mountain. I'm going to pay attention to my friend as I go up the mountain. I'm going to pay attention to the steps I'm taking, the path I take as I'm getting up the mountain. Not just fixed on the go, but here and now. This, this mindfulness that's 24-7, that's 360 in all aspects of our lives. That's mindful intention or intentional mindfulness. Another piece of that that comes into play is the need for some compassion. Right now, is the, between now and the end of the year, all of the Monday night talks are in some way exploring some aspect of the Brahma Viharas, the, these heavenly abodes, the, the minds of someone that's completely liberated, uh, would only have loving kindness thoughts, or mind states, I should say, better to say it as mind states, of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy and equanimity. Would not have thoughts of, of pettiness, of jealousy, of, of, of I need to be more important. Wouldn't have those kinds of thoughts. Just these thoughts of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Because the mind's not wanting anything, it's not aversive to anything, and it's not jumping around, nor is it falling in sloth and torpor. This is a fully liberated mind, we're taught. If I get there first, I'll let you know That's what a fully liberated mind feels like. And if you get there first, you let the rest of us know. <laughs> I can say for sure that the mind becomes more like that with practice. I've experienced it myself, and I've witnessed it now in thousands of people. The mind becomes more like that. More and more, there's, there's this kind of metta, this loving kindness, this karuna, this compassion, this mudita, this sympathetic joy, this, this ekagata, this, this, this quiet uh, equanimity that's not thrown off balance. It comes back to balance when things disturb it this kind of, of this serenity of mind. It comes more and more. Through what? Through practice. Through practice of what? This, this mindful intention or this intentional mindfulness. To be able to do that, to stay present in the moment, is quite difficult. The gap occurs because of our wanting mind and because of our aversive mind, because our mind gets restless 
it gets to fretting, it gets to worrying. The mind gets sluggish because of all the things we do that disturb the mind. Or the mind is filled with doubt, all sorts of doubt that freezes us out. So this is, these are the kinds of things that cause the gap to, to, uh, to occur. They're called the hindrances. There's another list called the fetters, the ten fetters, that also cause this kind of problem. As you leave here tonight, we're going to be giving you a, a kind of a, a list of the, some of the key lists of the Buddha's teachings so that you can see some of the things I'm referring to. That you'll, they'll be available as you leave outside there. This gap, this gap gets covered as we're able to see what's going on in the mind and we're able to come back. We're able to come back. We, we recognize what's going on in our mind and we can stay with it long enough to have wisdom about it. So the mind gets restless and you start fantasizing. The mind gets restless and you start doing analytical thinking. Or the mind's steady and you turn out that you can stay with it. These things occur in the mind. They just occur in the mind. As we learn to stay present, we then encounter the difficulty that when we're present, a lot of what goes on in our mind isn't so great. We don't really want to go there. As Annie Lamott says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there by myself. So, so it takes compassion. It takes compassion to learn to close the gap. Compassion for yourself. Compassion for another who's causing you such discomfort that you want to just tune out. It takes compassion. So there's a compassionate mindfulness, this, this compassionate, intentional mindfulness, or an intentional, compassionate mindfulness, however you can organize it in your head. So we cultivate compassion for ourselves, compassion for another, in part to be able to stay present so that wisdom can blossom. It's said that the Dharma flies on two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. And without both, it cannot take flight in our hearts. And I have found that to be true. So we get interested in our daily life. What's the gap here? The gap when I'm driving. What's that gap? The gap when I'm talking to someone at the office. When I'm sitting with my friends at lunch and I hear myself saying something that's not true or not kind or is, is way too self-referencing over and over again. What happened to my mind? What was the gap that caused that? Can I close this gap a little? So when I'm with my friend, do I really have to do one-upmanship? Can I not just listen? Can I not just care? Can I close that gap? And as we get interested, it turns out we can a little bit right away. Over time, quite a bit more. And over an extended period of time, we can close that gap so much that we feel different to ourselves. This is the power of mindfulness. It's available here and now. This is the importance of seeing it as practice rather than seeing it as results. 
Because if we see it as results, we keep looking for the result. And sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. And we've already moved away from the moment. But if it's practice, we're just there. I want to not be in competition with my friend. That's my, that's my goal. In this moment, am I being in competition with my friend or not? Oops, I am. How about this moment? We're willing to be with ourselves in our smallness, with our fear, with our wanting, with our lack of memory, with our lack of mindfulness. We're willing to be with ourselves just as we are. This is how we close the gap. When the gap starts to get closed, marvelous things happen. It happens when we're practicing. We see we're present one moment to the next to the next. And there's this, this, this serenity of mind, this calm mind it's called, starts to come. There's a joy that starts to come. There's a sense of well-being. There's a sense of relatedness to all things. All of these kinds of things will occur at times in our meditation. But likewise, there's, as, the, as this gap is closed in our daily life, we feel more present, more alive. We're more comfortable in our own skin. We start to develop what's called presence. There's a mindfulness that's moment to moment. As that mindfulness stays moment to moment, it starts to be an embodied presence. There's a mindfulness that's here and here, and there's an embodied presence. Somebody's home. And those of you who've been around people who have this quality of embodied presence, they are delightful to be around. It feels very satisfying to be in the presence of such a person. They're able to listen. They're attuned. They're alive to themselves and you become more alive around them. This is this embodied presence. The gap has been closed. In meditation, there's, um, there's a number of things that can happen when this gap is closed. Uh, in uh, 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 Chogam Trumpa's book, uh, 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 can't remember the name of it at this very moment. I just suddenly uh, blanked on it. The um, spiritual cutting through, cu cutting through spiritual materialism. Thank you. Cutting through spiritual materialism. He talks about this other form of the gap, and this form of the gap is when. There is presence of mindfulness that is going on and on and on. It could be three minutes or 10 minutes or hours. And the mind is there. There's a great mindfulness, there's great presence of mind, but there's no particular thought arising. So there is a gap between our thoughts and we're present for it. It's a very soothing sensation when we are present and there's nothing that is filling the gap. It's the other side of this gap when we disappear. We appear and all of that restless mind, all that moving mind goes away temporarily. And there's such spaciousness of mind when that occurs. There's a sense of recognition of what's called emptiness when that occurs. There's a sense of the quality of mind itself. This luminous quality of mind can appear in those kinds of gaps. 
If you get interested in the ordinary gaps, you are setting up the conditions where this kind of gap can appear. It's a balancing. As one is more present, therefore minimizing these gaps, you're developing qualities of mind that allow the flourishing of this kind of gap where we see that, oh, the mind is independent of what's present in the mind. That awareness itself is of a different quality than the awareness of any particular object. Objects come and go in this field of awareness that can be known. And this field of awareness has certain qualities itself. It's as though instead of looking at objects, you turn and you look back at, well, what is this knowing quality of mind? Every other year for the last number of years, a group of us here at Spirit Rock have taught what's called exploring the nature of awareness. It's a retreat in which all we do is look at the nature of awareness itself. Very useful kind of exploration for those of you with uh, some practice experience. There's a requirement to have uh, done a certain number of retreat nights to be able to uh, attend this retreat because you have to you have to have had some experience with your practice to be able to go into the subtleties of this exploration. But this gap in which there is this seeing clearly that we're not just the stream of thoughts, that we're not our wanting mind. We're not our wanting mind. Wanting mind comes and go. Aversive mind comes and go. That there is an end to suffering in a moment-to-moment -moment way. And as we see that there's an end to suffering in the moment-to-moment -moment way, we then set up the conditions for this more full transformation, liberation of mind, the transcendence of wanting mind. That is the third noble truth. So one way to, um, uh, one way to understand the four noble truths, I, I talk about it in Dancing with Life, uh, which again I learned from my teacher, the Venerable Sumedho, that, that the, the first noble truth is the truth that there is suffering. There's suffering. It's there. It's just there. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering is our wanting mind. It's called tanha, or thirst. Wanting all sorts of sense comforts and ways, wanting, wanting to become and not wanting to be. These are the three kinds of tanha that happen. It is around the, the gap. It's a gap between our seeing, our, our relation to the dukkha that is there. Dukkha is part of life. It's in, it's, it's, things are going to happen. Dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness, this unreliableness, the fact that we have physical pain, that we have emotional pain, the fact that everything changes, the fact that we die. The fact that we have trouble finding a there there, even in, a, in our best moments, it can be very hard to find any there there. All of these kinds of dukkha, are, are the, it's the way it is in this realm. We're not, we're not doing away with the conditions of this realm. The Buddha had a bad back. The Buddha had a lot of people being mean to him in various ways, including a distant cousin who tried to arrange an assassination for him. The Buddha died of food poisoning. 
the Buddha would often say to Sariputta or, or someone, you need to teach the Dhamma this evening, I need to rest. He was having a human existence that's natural of this realm. So that wasn't the Buddha's freedom. His freedom was in how he related to those conditions. He was not caught in any of those conditions. He was so kind to the man that fed him the meal that caused the food poison. He was not caught. He didn't get caught in when he was, he once had this bad fall and he's lying there and this uh, figure which referred to in the, in the text as Mara came and he, for, which is this mind, this doubting mind, this mind that would get angry or irritated. And he saw Mara clearly. He's lying there injured. So injured, being injured feels like this. That's the freedom from conditions, not being defined by conditions. It's not being free of the conditions, but not being defined by them. It's how we relate to it. In the, this particular teachings of the Four Noble Truths, there are three insights. This is from the sorry, skip that, don't have time for that. There's, there's three insights for each noble truth. And in the first noble truth, the, 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 the key insight is the practice insight of knowing the truth of suffering, opening to the ouch of suffering, that it's there is part of life. And the second noble truth, that the practice is to abandon, to abandon the, the cause of suffering, to abandon the way we're relating to uh, the fact of dukkha in a way that's causing this suffering in our minds and our hearts. That abandoning is closing the gap. It's closing the gap. When we stay present for the difficult in life and see that it is our unwillingness to surrender to conditions, that's causing the problems. And we, our unwillingness to surrender to conditions creates the gap because we, we want it to be different. This does not mean that when there's injustice in the world that we don't fight for justice. It doesn't mean that if, we're, if our body is hurting that we don't get help for, for it. It doesn't mean that we're hungry we eat, that we don't eat. It means that we don't relate in our minds. We still employ skillful means out of compassion to take care of our body, to have justice in the world, to enjoy ourselves. The Buddha uh, and many suttas uh, talking to the, to the lay community would name all these different kinds of happiness that comes from the material world. But we're not defined by that kind of happiness. We have a kind of freedom. We don't get to know that freedom because we refuse to know what we know. We continue looking for happiness in all the wrong places. We think that, oh, if I just get rid of this moment of aversion, then I'm going to be happy. And there may be a temporary relief for just a moment, but then there's another moment of aversion or another moment of greed. The wanting mind never ceases wanting. It's its nature to want. It's just its nature. It's not bad that it's wanting. It's just its nature. It's ethically neutral. It's morally neutral. It's just wanting mind. But if, if left to its own devices, it creates suffering. So we learn to stay present in a way that we get to co-create this very moment. Just a small amount of creation in this great thing of this moment. 
but we get a little moment of co-creating. We can say, no, I won't say this to, to my difficult sibling. I'm not going to get sucked into that conversation for the thousandth time. I won't do it. I'm not going to uh, be pulled into this thing at the office where it only causes suffering. I'm not going to let my wanting to, to uh, be approved lead me to more rejection. We learn to be wise in our speech and wise in our action and wise in our interpretation of what is. Just as we are not new improved versions of us, although that does lead to a new improved version, we learn to be present for what's, what's possible for us in this way. We close that gap. In time, with practice, and this is maybe like, you could be somewhat dubious that this is possible, but in time, as we practice, we start, as, as we let loose of, the, of, of escaping and just stay present with what is, we can be walking around, we can be sitting at home, having some tea, and we fall into that other kind of gap. We're very awake, we're very present, and there's nothing going on in the mind. And then we can even reach a point where we can go back and forth between mental activity, where we're choosing mental doing, and go back to non-doing. For the mind's not, not doing anything. It's just empty. It's just sitting there. And we can actually choose to go back and forth. Is this going to happen to everyone in this room? Probably not, but it could. But it certainly could happen to you. The mind is, is, has a softness, a pliability, a flexibility that we vastly underestimate. It doesn't so much matter that you ever experience that, but that you know the, the direct feeling of the softness of mind in whatever way that you can know it. You see that the mind is, is content. That's already getting into that space. You see that, there's, that the mind is not constantly a thought, but there are these little quick pauses. Just like there's a pause between the inhale and the exhale, or the exhale and the inhale. Or there's a pause between uh, wanting one thing and wanting something else, that there's a pause. That there's a pause between uh, picking up the, the, the fork and putting the food in the mouth. That there's a moment in there when that mind's not doing anything. It's just the, the conditioning that's taking that fork on into the mouth. That, it, that, our, that our life is made up of much more spacious moments than we think. That there's, a, that there, there's all of this, uh, this gap of space around the impulse and the actual action. That, that there will be many impulses and only a few of those impulses actually become an intention to speak or do. That many times we're acting out of impulse, not out of intention in the moment. And so much of our suffering that we cause others or ourselves is because we bought into the impulse. We didn't stay with the impulse long enough to have a real relationship with it. We were just that puppet on the string. Something unpleasant happened and we acted with unpleasantness. And it may not have been this, 
the, the person that we're acting unpleasant towards may not have been the source of the thing that caused the unpleasantness for us, but we, because it generated the impulse, this reactive mind, we then act it out. But as we stay present, we say, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. As we start to see this, we go, oh, I'm a terrible person. That's why compassion, that's why metta is so important. You're not a terrible person. You're not a terrible person. You're an untrained mind, acting in an untrained mind. You're just the puppet on the string because you're in reactive mind state. It's just a mind state. It's not a me or mine. It's a mind state that's arising due to conditions. Conditions can be changed through this compassionate mindfulness, through intentional mindfulness. There can be a new way to dance with life. And this starts to come right away. Some recognition of possibility. It doesn't take that much practice if we're practicing in our daily life. If we're really watching our behavior, we start to see, oh, there is choice. There is choice. In this very moment, I can choose non-suffering over suffering. Right now, it's really true for me. You can see this tomorrow a number of times if you just cultivate the mindfulness throughout the day. Mindfulness of what? Mindfulness of my intention to choose non-suffering over suffering. In this very moment, in this very moment. So you're getting ready to open your mouth. Is what you're going to say cause suffering or non-suffering? Just be curious. Just watch. You don't have to stop tomorrow. You just get to watch. It's like you're taking the whole understanding on a test drive. Oh, so now I'm going to put this food in my mouth. Is this causing suffering or non-suffering? Oh, I'm having this inner thought about myself. Is this thought uh, causing suffering or non-suffering? Your harsh critic is there saying something that might even be true as a shortcoming. But, but making you that and that alone, is that the truth? As you stay with it mindfully, this isn't all of the truth. Yes, yes, I'm sloppy in this way, but I'm also caring, and yes, I'm also creative, and, and yes, I'm also sometimes not sloppy. When we abandon ourselves, that's the gap. That's the gap. When we close the gap, when we stay present one moment to the next, we create choice. This choice of being mindful in such a way that we can see what is causing suffering and not causing suffering. And then eventually see, oh, I do have a little choice. Lots of times it will seem as though we have no choice. We can be mindfulness. We're being very mindful and off we go and create some kind of suffering for ourselves or another. But as we watch this over and over again, it changes. We don't. We don't. It takes repetition to learn. So what? What else are we going to do with our time? <laughs> what else are we going to do? Are we just going to do the, the samsaric circle of, of repeating the same kind of suffering we've done already? Isn't that kind of boring? Wouldn't it be more interesting to see, oh, can I close the gap here? Can I find a new relationship just in this moment around this particular subject? Can I have a new relationship? Can I not have the gap be there? So this is the offering for this evening, to close the gap, to close this gap that causes us suffering in such a way that we're opening to a new kind of gap, 
a gap where there's spaciousness, where there is choice, where we see that we're not our shortcomings, that our shortcomings are due to conditions, where we see we're not that which we also think makes us so much better than someone else, that that too is due to conditions, that the liberated heart is operating from its own nature, its own nature of kindness, its own nature of compassion, its own nature of celebrating the happiness of others, and its own nature of being equanimous with whatever's arising, always back to center, always able to surf the wave of pleasant and unpleasant and not fall off the board. This is the realization. So that's the offering. Questions or comments about the offering this evening? Any question about your life where you can prove to me that that would not apply to you in your life? I particularly like those kinds of questions. Or any other kind of question or comment? Thank you for that. Her, her question is so going to illustrate the whole point of everything I've said this evening. She was, she was uh, tempted to do something that she knew was not good for her, and she chose not to do it. She was able to say, no, I'm not going to do this. It's not good for me. But as a result, huge fear came up, and there was a, there was a lot of dread and unease, and it was, it was suffering. It was suffering that she felt. Whereas had she done that thing temporarily, there wouldn't have been suffering. So she chose the second kind of suffering, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, over the first kind of suffering, which is to do something that temporarily relieves you, but actually just keeps you in the, in the eddy, this repetition of suffering. So that's what it's like when you choose the second kind of suffering. It seems, like, it seems to be worse at first. But as you do that a few times, you start to know this will ebb, this will go away. And you start to have a kind of confidence. And that's why the practice is so important. Because in that moment, you can't get a result that you'd like, which is no suffering. So you've only got a choice between two kinds of suffering. But if you go, I'm practicing, then this is practice. I value practice, so that becomes your reward. The practice itself becomes the reward. Uh, my friend George Leonard, who's no longer with us, he wrote a little book, small book, called Mastery. And, and one of the things he describes, uh, I recommend this book to everyone in any profession, is that, that to, mastery involves learning to love practice and learning to love the plateau. So here you are, you have to make this over and over again, and nothing seems to be happening. You're on the plateau. But then one day, whoops, 
You're no longer caught in that whole thing that first tempted you. And you don't have that big anxiety. There's a little tinkling of anxiety, but it just subsides. Then you go, wow, this moment. What was magic about this moment that broke through? There wasn't any magic about this moment. There's all of those other moments when it seemed like nothing was happening. You were cutting through the, that huge ice of your fear, that thick ice. And for a long time, we don't feel as though anything's happening because it's thick. We don't realize that, well, we're making all this progress, and then suddenly we break into the light. We've gotten, we're on the surface of it. We're, we're beyond it. So I can say the practice of being with the sadness and the fear or whatever it is, the practice of coming back to allowing that to be there. You're allowing it. Each time I allow that to be there, there's, there's less and less charge around it. That's right. Each, uh, there, although it may not be measurable in a way that's detectable to you now, this is, the, the, the Vipassana practice is a purification practice. And that purification can be uh, happening in such small units that unless the mind is really, really super concentrated, you can't feel it, you can't tell it's there. So yeah, so this is, this is the offering, and this is all of practice. I mean, this is it. There's a cartoon I was sharing with them on Saturday where these two monks are sitting side by side and one is saying with great irritation to the other, stop asking what's next, there, this is it. <laughs> it's very simple practice, but it develops more and more subtlety and it's liberating. So let's close our eyes for a moment. In these next two minutes, can you stay present with no gap? I'd like to offer my loving kindness to everyone and have you offer it to everyone else in the room through a call and response. So I'll say one of four lines and then you repeat that line. There'll be a little pause and then we'll go to the next one all the way through. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you be safe from internal and external harm. Receive the metta. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. Stay strong, healthy, and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life, just as it is. 
any merit that arose from our practice this evening, we offer that merit to all beings without preference, without condition. May all beings benefit from our practice. May all beings be able to close the gap in their lives that caused them to experience suffering. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Thank you for your kind attention. If you would be willing to help, because we don't have, we, we're, we're, since we're up here, we don't have our regular crew of volunteers. If the red chairs, if you would stack the red chairs against that wall as you leave, two, one on top of each other, no more than two. And with the mats, if the mats, if you're sitting on a Zabuton, would you stack that back against the wall here? If you've got some of those little cushions, put it against there. If you've got the folding chairs, the brown folding chairs, take them out into the hallway. This will make a huge difference. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.